We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. I hope you've got your Bible with you and encourage you to open to Acts, the 12th chapter. Put a marker or a finger there. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I want to give a summary of the chapter, kind of go through, work our way through the chapter. We won't read every verse, but we'll scan and pick out some sections and just get a summary of what is the chapter about, and then we're going to come back and look at some practical things we learn about service to God from this chapter. Acts chapter 12 has three things that happen here. Here's the first, that James is killed, and that's found in verses 1 to 3. Here we have the story in Acts chapter 12 of Herod persecuting the church. And that's really what the chapter's all about, is Herod persecuting the church. He's, he's raising the pressure and upping the pressure on persecution, and he's doing so for political purposes, as we're going to see at verse 3 here in just a moment. About that time, Herod, now who is the Herod we're talking about? This is Herod Agrippa I, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. He is the one that's mentioned here in this context. And he stretched out his hand to harass some in the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. This James is the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. What has he accomplished, or what has he done in his work? Well, he's a, he's a servant of the Lord, and he's out preaching and teaching the gospel. But Luke doesn't tell us a lot about his work. This is a little glimpse of his effectiveness of his work. And what I'm learning from this, if, if Herod thought he needed to start with him by killing him and persecuting the church by attacking James, he must have thought James was very effective in his work. We don't have a lot about James's work. But this tells me it must have been effective. Why start with him and not with Peter? But he reaches out his hand and he kills James, the text says. And he did so for political purposes because he saw that it pleased the Jews, the text said. That is, he's, he's trying to win favor with the Jews. Then he decides he's going to seek after Peter. So James is killed, verses 1 to 3. Beginning at verse 3b through verse 19, it's the story of Peter being imprisoned. Let's see what happens with the case of Peter. Because what he did with James seemed to really please the Jews, he thought, well, now I'm going to go after another. And so he seizes Peter and he puts him in prison. This was in the days of the unleavened bread, the text says. And they put him in prison, according to verse 4, and they put four squads. That's a total of 16 soldiers guarding him. This is well secure. There's no way this man's going to escape. And he intended to bring him before the people after Passover. Apparently, we would assume that means that he's going to do the same with Peter as he's done with James. He's going to kill him. So he's going to bring him out before the people. He's trying to please the Jews, we've already seen. So he's going to bring Peter out after the Passover. We don't want to do anything during the Passover. We want to be righteous, and so we don't want to violate any principles. But we'll bring him out and we'll kill him in time. Now, beginning at verse 5, Peter is delivered, the text tells us. Now, there was prayer being offered. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Well, we'll analyze that a little more closely later. Particularly in light of verse 12, that the household of Mary was offering, people were gathered there at her house, offering prayer at verse 12. But they were offering prayer for him. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter, meeting at verse, was sleeping. Take note of that. He was bound with chains between two soldiers, and the guards at the door were keeping the prison. Get a picture of 16 soldiers guarding him. He's chained to two guards. There's no way this man's going to escape. 
They're going to bring him out and kill him. Perhaps the security was because he'd escaped jail once before in Acts 5, and uh, they're perhaps thinking that, that uh, we need to make sure this is secure. Now, beginning at verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood by him and, and struck Peter on the side and told him to rise quickly, and his chains fell off of his hands. A miraculous event takes place. In verse 8, the angel said, gird yourself and tie on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, put on your garments and follow me. And they went out, and he followed him, and uh, not knowing that what was done by the angel was real because he was thinking this was a vision. Peter's thinking, I'm, I'm just imagining and I'm dreaming this. So they went, verse 10, past the first guard and the second guard, and then they came to the iron gate that opened of its own accord. So get the picture, his chains are falling off. He goes through one gate and then another gate, and then he comes to this outer gate that leads to the outside, and it opens of its own accord, the text says. And they went out and went down the street, and immediately the angel departed for him. Peter's now free. And when Peter had come to himself, look at that at verse 9. What does that mean? Or verse 11, when he came to himself. In other words, the... The uh, NLT says when he came to his senses. The new century said when he realized what had happened, he finally comes to himself and realized, you know what, this isn't a dream. This is real. I have escaped. An angel of God has come and caused me to, to be delivered. And he said, the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the Jews. The Jews wanted me killed and Herod wants me killed and I've been delivered from them. Now why did God, as we mentioned in Bible class, deliver Peter and allow James to be killed? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Well, God has a purpose and God has a plan. Now beginning at verse 12, after he's released, he came to the house of Mary. This is the mother of John. That's John Mark, the travel companion of Paul that we read about turning back on the missionary journey a little later in Acts chapter 15, in the first part of chapter 15. And Peter knocked on the door. He went to that house and he knocked on the door and there was a young girl named Rhoda came to the door to answer the door and she recognized Peter's voice and because of her gladness she didn't open the door and she went and announced to the people, it's Peter at the door. You get the picture. If you've ever been so excited you didn't hardly know what to do and you didn't know whether to open the door or not and she didn't. She didn't open the door and she runs and tells all the rest of them, Peter's at the door. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. And she kept insisting, and they said, it's his angel. Perhaps based on a misconception that each person has a guardian angel, and that's his angel that you're seeing. You're not seeing him. But Peter continued knocking, and they opened the door, and they were astonished. They're absolutely floored. They are amazed that Peter has showed up at the door. He was in prison and guarded heavily. And now he's at the door. But motioning to them to keep silent. In other words, Peter had to calm them down. There is so much excitement in the room at Mary's household that he has to calm them down so he can have something to say to them. And he calms them down and he says, go and tell these things to James. That's the Lord's brother. The other James has already been killed. You go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now the scene shifts back to Herod and his men. There was no small stir among the soldiers when they, when, uh, uh, about what had become of Peter. In other words, they go to the prison to bring him out and he's gone. And there's no small stir. In other words, there's quite a bit of excitement going on. What in the world happened to Peter? I thought we guarded him with 16 soldiers. I thought he was chained between two. So how did this happen? So Herod has a search for that and had the guards executed. Then he went on down to Caesarea and he stayed there. Now the scene shifts again. 
So we have James has been killed, Peter is in prison. This is all with reference to the persecution of Herod and Herod's attack on the church. Now beginning at verse 20 through verse 24, Herod dies. This Herod we're talking about. He was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. What was the argument and the issue about, we are not told. They were dependent on him for food. They send ambassadors to him and they deal with, with a man named Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they were asking for peace. They are trying to make peace so they can eat. So what was the issue? I don't know what the issue was about. We're not told what the issue was about. We don't have a clue what it was about, but there was some difference and he was angry with them and perhaps cutting off their food. And so they send ambassadors trying to reconcile, let's get this re- restored and let's work this difference out so we can now eat. They must have caved to his pressure because on a set day when he sat in royal apparel and sat on his throne and he gave an oration to the people, the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of man. They must have caved to the pressure so they could eat and so they're praising him. And they're saying, this is the voice of a God. As he begins to give this oration, he's a God and he's not some kind of man. And immediately, look at verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him and because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. If you've heard me teach the book of Acts, you've heard me talk about progress reports. Now here's a progress report. Look at verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. In other words, the word of God was effective and people turned to the, God, turned to the Lord. And so that caused some people to turn to the Lord. And then the chapter ends that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they took John Mark back with them. And that's the story of Acts chapter 12. Now, in that story, I see a number of things. I see a story about persecution. That's what the whole chapter's about. But not only do I see persecution, I see a story about prayer. Verse 5, verse 12. And perhaps other verses imply. I see a story of peace. The peace that Peter experienced while even in prison. It's unbelievable. I see a story of purpose. The purpose of these disciples. Like at verse 12. The purpose they should have had beginning at verse 20. In contrast. I see a story of praise. Praise being given to God, perhaps at verse 5, maybe at verse 12, and also what should have been given to God starting at verse 20. And I see a story of punishment. Someone being punished for not giving the due praise unto God. There's a great deal in this chapter. So let's look in Acts chapter 12 and let's talk about principles of service. Let's talk about some things we learned very practical about principles of service that applies to us. From these three simple stories of James being killed, Peter being released from prison, and Herod dying. What could we learn? What could we possibly learn? Very practical from that. Here's the first thing I learned. I'm learning from this the price we pay in service. The price we pay. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2 of our context. And in verse 1, here is James, one of the sons of Zebedee, who was a disciple of the Lord, was, must have been quite effective in his work because he becomes the target of Herod Agrippa I. And the text says that he reached out his hand and he persecuted the church and that he killed James with a sword. He must have beheaded him. 
Here's something I'm learning about the price we pay. I'm learning that God never promised it would be easy to serve the Lord. God never made that promise. God never made a promise it'd be easy to serve the Lord. The impression is false that says the following, and sometimes we leave the wrong impression, that life gets easier if you're a Christian. Sometimes a a Christian trying to convert their friend who's having some difficulties in life, that if you would just become a Christian, your life's going to be better and your life will be easier. I don't know why you tell them that. Because that may not be true. Explain that to James. Or your problems you're going through, conflicts will be over if you just serve God. You have conflicts in life. You have conflicts in family and you have conflicts with people. And all of that's going to end and cease if you just serve God. Someone may say. Someone else may say that you, you will be treated right if you're a good person. You be the person you should be and other people are going to treat you right. You explain that to James for me. Or relationships will be smooth if you just follow God. I know you have some rough relationships with friends and maybe in family, but all of that just smooths out and it's going to be smooth sailing if you just turn to God and you become a Christian. I want to suggest to you the evidence is missing that any of that's true. If I'm learning anything from verses 1 and 2, sometimes we have to pay a price for our service to the Lord. God warned that there may be a price you have to pay. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 13. All who live godly will suffer persecution. Are you trying to live godly? The warning was, if you live godly, you'll suffer persecution. There's some suffering for the cause of what's right. You're suffering because you are doing what's right. Your suffering doesn't go away because you're doing right. It may only begin because you're doing what's right. Let's turn to the book of Luke chapter 14. You may even lose relationships. In other words, no one ever said, and God never promised, you you turn to me and things are going to get so much smoother and so much better. Let's start at verse 25. We're in Luke chapter 14 beginning at verse 25. And the great multitudes went with him and he turned to them and here's what he said. This is Jesus teaching. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. In other words, you must put all relationships secondary to serving me. Now, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which you have intending to build a tower does not set down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it. Lest. After he has laid the foundation, he is not able to finish it. And they began to, and all began to see and, um, and, and began to mock him. Verse 30, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king goes to war with another king and does not set down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet those who come against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still way, way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. Now notice the conclusion, verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, he cannot be my disciple. You see what he was saying? It may cost you relationships. In other words, sit down and count the cost of being a disciple before I decide to be a disciple. Am I going to be able to do that? Am I going to be willing to pay the price? I want to tell you, the early Christians paid dearly. Just back up in your mind, if you don't want to turn back there, but go back to Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. The apostles were rested and beaten. 
That happened to the disciples, the apostles, for preaching the truth. They were beaten. Stephen was stoned to death, Acts 7. The disciples were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen in Acts 7. And Acts 8 says they're scattered and went everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8 and verse 4. That alluded to again in Acts chapter 11, by the way. James earlier in our chapter was killed and Peter was in prison. The early disciples paid dearly. And so I ask you this question. I ask, how does this compare with what you're willing to pay? There's a price we pay for being a disciple. It may involve some inconvenience. We, we like a religion that's not inconvenient. But it may involve some inconvenience. And serving the Lord may be inconvenient for you. It was for some of these disciples, wasn't it? It may involve losing relationships. Some people, because they've decided to serve the Lord, are losing their families, their, their brothers and their sisters. Their parents turn against them. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you may have family members that won't speak to you again because you turn to the Lord. That happens. It may involve some expense, some loss of money, even a job. Some people have lost their job because of their dedication to the Lord. It may involve hard work. It may involve mistreatment. It's not that you may be treated better because you're a Christian. You may be treated worse because you are a Christian. You may have to put some real time and effort into being a Christian. It may cost you the price we pay. We learn from this context. Let's go to verse 5 now. I'll learn another lesson in this context about service. Not only the price we pay, but the power we possess. And let's talk about the circumstance here before we go to verse 5 and then look at verse 12. Let's talk about the situation at hand. At verse 4 of Acts chapter 12, now, at verse 4, Peter is in prison. He's been heavily guarded. We know what's already been done to James, so therefore there is a danger in all likelihood and probably pro it's probable he's going to be killed from the vantage point of those who have gathered together at verse 5. The disciples felt powerless in one sense. What can we do? Peter's in prison. They're guarding him heavily. They're making sure he's not going to escape. We know he's serious because that is King Herod is serious because he's already put one to death and he's, we heard rumor he's going to bring Peter out tomorrow. And they feel powerless. But they had power, real power through prayer. Notice at verse 5. Peter therefore was kept in prison but constant. Constantly or earnestly. There's two ideas involved in that word constant. They prayed earnestly. They prayed fervently. They prayed constantly in the sense they continued to pray. But they prayed earnestly, fervently, putting some life and some vitality into their prayers. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. So when, they, when, he, uh, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So they gathered for prayer. They were praying earnestly, and they had gathered together for prayer. Now I want you to notice in verses 13 to 17, they were amazed at the result. They were absolutely astonished. Look at verse 16. When they saw people, they were astonished. What does that tell you? 
They must not have been praying for his release or else why were they surprised? I don't gather. Maybe they were. You say, I think they were praying for his release. Maybe they were. But if they were praying earnestly and fervently for his release and then he's released, they are astonished at that. The text says. They must have been praying for some other things. Perhaps they were praying for Peter's faith that it wouldn't fail like it did once before. That it wouldn't fail under the pressure. And that he might have courage as he faces death. Because he's certainly going to face it. James did. They might have prayed that he wouldn't die. That he might just be kept in prison. And that if there is any sort of a sham of a trial that it will come out on top and he will not be killed. Maybe that was what they were praying for. Perhaps they even prayed for themselves in the midst of this, of how we're going to handle this. What should we do? What can we do? And what if this pressure comes to us and we are now treated like Peter and like James were being treated? What are we going to do and will our faith fail and will it hold up under pressure? And what I want to tell you is we have access to unbelievable power. Let's turn to some other New Testament passages about prayer. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. These disciples didn't turn to prayer as a last resort. They recognized the power they had in their hands. And we have that same power. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 22. That whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. The assurance is God hears our prayer. The assurance is not whatever you ask, God's going to grant that very request. But the assurance is that God's hearing and he will respond to that prayer if you're doing that which is pleasing in his, in his sight. Let's go to another passage. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 12 is a quotation from Psalm 34, which by the way talks about those who fear God. But be that as it may, look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. In other words, he listens and he responds to the prayers of the righteous. God hears our prayer. There's unbelievable power. Let's go to the book of James. Look at James chapter 5. And in verse 16, that there is power in this prayer. He said, confess your trespasses one toward another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Now notice at the end of verse 16, you might underline, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It does good. When a righteous man prays, it's powerful. Well, James, what do you mean it's powerful? Can, can, can you illustrate that for me about how prayer works? What do you mean the prayer of a righteous man avails much? Okay, here's my illustration. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with passion like ours. He's no different than we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Case number one, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. There's power in prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Let me give you a second illustration. Look at verse 18. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He prayed it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. He prayed that it would, and it did. There's power in prayer. The same power that the disciples experienced. You see, if we believe in the power of prayer, we believe in providence. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. If we wanted to talk about providence, and you said... Cite one verse and only one verse that, that exclaims providence of God, God's power that we tap into when we pray. 
That would have to be Revelation 4 and verse 11. This throne scene that God is still on his throne and in control. And at verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power. For you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. What is he saying? God created a universe that he could control and he uses it for his purpose. That's the point. God's still on his throne and in control and he's controlling that universe for his purpose. That's providence. And we may be surprised. We may get more than we ask for. Apparently these disciples did. I don't know that they were praying for his release. They may have been praying for his safety, maybe praying for his uh, not dying, maybe that his faith not fail. Whatever they were praying for, they are astonished when they see Peter come to the door. There is power in prayer. And so here's a question. Are you utilizing the power that you have in your hand? Are you utilizing that power you have in your hand? You sometimes say, I, I wish I could do something. I, I wish that I had power to do something. These disciples said, you know what? We've got power. And they used it. Here's the third thing. I'm seeing something not only about the price we pay, the power we possess, but the peace we portray. Look at verse 6. Before we get to verse 6, may I suggest to you that there was a terrible situation that Peter faced. He's in prison, by the way. Put there by Agrippa I, who has already killed James. He could be beaten severely. That's been done before Acts 4 and Acts 5. All indication they're going to bring him out the next morning. What are they going to do with him? Well, they could beat him severely. That's, that's not something new. That's been done before. He could be kept in prison for the rest of his life. They're not intending for him to get away because they have 12, they have 16 soldiers, four squads. 16 soldiers guarding and he's chained to two. He could even be killed just as James had been killed. I want to tell you, this was a terrible circumstance. What if you were put in jail overnight and you've got a rumor, something's going to be done to me in the morning and you're not sure what they're going to do. They may put me in prison for life and I may never see daylight again. Or maybe they're going to drag me out in front of people and beat me or they may execute me. One, I'm not sure which. What would you be doing? Look at verse 6. What was Peter doing? Go back to Acts 12. If you've left there, look at verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping. Look at the calmness and the confidence that Peter had that only few would have. Here is a peace that only comes from real faith. And my question is, when I look at that, is how could that be? How could that be? How could you be sleeping when you think they may come and get me by morning and take my head off? Or beat me at least. Perhaps he had learned this principle that he cast his cares upon God. Oh, we know the passage. You can quote it if this were a Bible class. I could start, cast your, and you could finish the quote. Cares upon him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. We all know what the passage says, but it means you literally take those worries and those cares and you turn them over to God because I can't handle those. Perhaps he had done that. Perhaps he had learned what was really important, 
Because Jesus said, do not fear him that is able to kill the body, but him that is able to kill both soul and body in hell. All they can do is take your life and take your head off. They can't take your soul. Maybe that's what Peter recognized. Maybe he had this fixed in his mind, that this life is only temporary. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Maybe that's what he understood. Maybe he was thinking this life is just temporary. This, this life means nothing much. But I'm really interested in the spiritual beyond. Maybe that's what he was thinking. And so let me ask you this question. Are you portraying that same kind of peace? Go back and look at verse 6. In the midst of this turmoil, Peter is in prison and he's asleep. Are you betraying this kind of peace to the point that the world begins to ask, how could you do that? Are you betraying a peace to those that are around you that they have to ask, how do you handle this? What is it about your faith that causes you to do what you do? Because that would be a question I'd have to ask Peter. Peter, how did you do that? How did you do that? Do you live a life that's just full of turmoil and, 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 and it's chaos? Or are you living a life of peace where people are looking at you saying, I don't understand how in the midst of all the turmoil that's around you, you have such peace? Are you constantly worried about things in life and full of turmoil and excitement and anxiety? Peter didn't seem to be. Peter was portraying peace. Lessons. And service, principles of service. The price we pay, the power we possess, the peace we portray. Let's look at verse 12. The purpose we pursue. Look at verse 12 in Acts 12. When Peter got out of prison, the angel has left him. He walks down the street. He finds the house of Mary where they're having what we might label as a prayer meeting. Let's read again at verse 12. So when they considered this, that is, he finally came to himself and realized, this is all real. This is real. I've been released. He came to the house of Mary. That's the mother of John, whose surname is Mark. Where many were gathered together praying. There is no indication they came together, and while they're together, while we're eating and fe feasting and we're having a big party, why don't we say a little prayer for Peter while we're here? No indication that was what was going on. Their purpose for coming together was for prayer so they, pray, so they could pray together. Look again at verse 12. They were gathered together praying. Just like we have a singing or a Bible study. We have a Bible study, and so what's the purpose? Well, we've come together for the purpose of studying the Bible. Now, we may sing a song while we're there. We may have a prayer. But the purpose and the focal point is to study. We have singings, and our purpose for gathering together is to sing. Now, we may say a prayer, but at the, same, the focal point is we've come together to sing. This was the focal point was to come together to pray. It seems like from the context that they met in different places in Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 5 and verse 12 and then verse 17 and see what Gareth Reese said about that. Verse 5 that Peter therefore was kept in prison, but constant prayer was being offered for him by the church. I gather 
though there is some conjecture, that the church at Jerusalem, which is large in number, was offering prayer for Peter. So when I get to verse 12, the text says that there were many that were gathered together praying in the end of verse 12, but not all of them. That wasn't all the church. Drop down to verse 17. When Peter finally got them all quiet there at the household of Mary, he said, go tell James. James wasn't there. And the brethren, there were other brethren that weren't there. Which brings us to this conclusion. I think Gareth Reese said it best. He said, the implication may be that this was but one of several cottage prayer meetings in and around Jerusalem. There may have been other groups all over Jerusalem meeting for prayer for James and others were not present. I think he's perhaps right about that. That the household of Mary was just one of the places that over here there may have been others and over there there may have been others and over there there may have been others and over here there may have been others who are gathered together for a prayer because constant prayer was being made by the church. Verse 5. But verse 17 says they weren't all in the same place. Tell you what that says about prayer though. What does that say to us about prayer? It said they believed in prayer and in its power. Let's go to Luke 18 verse 1. We've already talked about the power of prayer. But Jesus spoke a parable to this end, Luke 18. Then men ought always to pray and not to faint. This is the parable of the persistent widow. And the point is, Jesus said, he, or the text records, that the, point, the focal point is men ought always to pray. Now notice later at verse 8, when Jesus concludes the parable, he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? And it may be in a cursory reading, you think, well, he just shifted gears. He'd been talking about prayer. Now he's talking about faith. No, he's tying faith and prayer together. When Jesus comes, will he still find on earth people who have enough faith and prayer? They're continuing to pray. Or maybe they've given up on their praying. Then what it tells me when I look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, that they believed in prayer and in its power. I'll tell you the second thing it tells me about prayer. They had a lot of things to pray about. They may have been praying about Peter. No doubt they were. The text says they were. But they had a lot of things to pray about. The Lord continued all night in prayer unto God. We recently studied that passage in Luke 6 and verse 12. But if Jesus prayed all night, he had a lot to pray about. If they had gathered for the purpose of prayer, they had a lot they wanted to say in prayer. Or else there's no need to gather together. And it tells me another thing about prayer. There's value in praying together. See, I can pray, I can go home and I can pray about this situation. You can go home and pray. But there is some value of us coming together and we pray together. Because verse 12 said they gathered together for prayer. There is some value in that. And so I raise a question. Could we use more prayer meetings? Maybe as a congregation? Maybe in individual homes? Where maybe we plan a singing sometime, we plan a Bible study sometime, or maybe we plan a prayer meeting where we just get together and we're going to pray about several circumstances they did in Acts chapter 12. But let's look at verses 20 to 24. Principles of service. There's the price we pay, the power we possess, the peace we portray, the purpose we pursue, but then there's the praise that we proclaim, verses 20 to 24. This is the story now of Herod. Receiving praise that was undue to him. Now look at verse 20. We're back to Acts 12. If you've left that, let's go back. The people of Tyre and Sidon were seeking after peace with him. There was this odds they had. They were at odds. 
And he was angry with them and upset with them. Perhaps they've done something. Maybe they weren't paying their tithe or paying their, their tribute. Not tithe, but their tribute. Whatever it may have been. I don't know. And Herod spoke to them, verse 21. He gave an oration and he gave this great speech. And then they praised him as God and not as man. And here was the problem with that. Look at verse 23. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. The problem wasn't that he gave this great speech. The problem wasn't that people extolled him as being a great king and praised him as a king. The problem was that he received the glory and the praise that should have been given unto God. And therein was the problem. And so here's something I'll learn about praise. That praise and homage and honor should be given to God. The angel, when an attempt was made to bow down before the angel and worship him, he said, worship God, Revelation 22 and verse 9. So praise is due to God. But I'll learn another lesson from this context. And that is there's ways in which we may praise man over God. I doubt we ever have seen someone go to praise someone and praise him and you are a God and you're not a man. You've probably never witnessed anyone bowing down before a man and saying you are our God and we are praising you as, as a God and you're not a man like they did with Herod. But there is sometimes undue praise given to man. Here's how. Like maybe the wearing of titles. Psalm 111 in verse 9 said, Holy and reverent is his name, speaking of God's, God's name is revered. And that's why the text says holy and reverend is his name. That was not a title to be given to man. And so when man comes along and says, well, I'm reverend so-and-so, he's wearing a title that belongs to God. Jesus would warn in Matthew 23, call no man your father upon earth. I'm not talking about saying this is my earthly father, but in a spiritual sense, this is our father, like Catholicism does, for example. Man receiving the praise that ought to be due unto God. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Here is a case where we may praise man over God when the importance of the messenger is put over the message. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter came to the household of Cornelius, he's bringing a message to Cornelius, and Peter coming in, and Cornelius met him, verse 25, and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. He's giving great emphasis to the messenger. Peter is the great messenger, and I'm going to praise him. And he bows down to worship him. Look at verse 27. Verse 26, Peter said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. Don't worship me, I'm a man. The messenger is not more important than the message. And let's go to Galatians chapter 2. Here's another way in which that may be done. When man becomes the standard. In other words, the, the standard is whatever the man says, that here's what the preacher says, or here's what this elder says, or here's what this Bible class teacher, and if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. And if he says it's true, it must be true. So the man becomes the standard. You say, what's Galatians 2 have to do with that? Remember when Peter acted as a hypocrite? That even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. He let Peter become the standard. If Peter's doing it, I'm going to do it too. And Peter was carried away because of some came from James. He let them become the standard of what he was going to do. And therefore there is undue praise. So what have we learned from Acts chapter 12? Principles of service. What are the principles of service we learned from Acts chapter 12? Three stories. James is beheaded. James is killed. 
We have Peter in prison and he's released from prison and you have Herod killed because of not giving praise unto God. And from that we learn several lessons. We learn something of the price we pay. As servants of the Lord, we may have to pay a price like James did. The power we possess in prayer, where they did, they prayed earnestly. The peace we portray like Peter did when he was perhaps even going to be killed, he thought. And he's sleeping. And the purpose we pursue of coming together for the purpose of praying unto God and then the praise that we proclaim should be due to God and not to man. Several lessons we learn about the principle of service to God. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?